Welcome to Medically Speaking, Auburn's own medical radio show with host Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and Larry Finney. All right, there's my cowbell. Need more? No, well, that's about, the, that's about a therapeutic dose of cowbell right there, I'd say. Therapeutic, how appropriate for the medical show. Welcome okay. to Medically Speaking Radio with Larry Finney and Dr. Mark Vaughn. We are the doctor and the non-doctor. And we're here to talk about changes in medicine. That's what we're talking about this week uh, for May 23rd when this will be posted. One change I'd like to see in medicine. What's that? Those goofy robes that y'all make us put on with the, the big oh, gap yeah. in the Have back. You seen and stuff. Ours? You've seen ours, right? No. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well, what's interesting about ours is that they actually are made out of cloth <laughs> instead of paper. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty big. There are people who say that they're not large enough for them. I'll say nothing more. Okay. <laughs> Those you know, people exist. There are in always, <laughs> yeah, there are always people for whom things are not large enough. <laughs> yeah. I ended up with a, an airplane seat the other day that had the, I couldn't figure out why the buckles, why, why do I have two buckles? You know, I, I've oh. done seat belts a zillion times. Why is this? You got the double seat? Uh, somebody had put, uh, the, the, the prior passenger apparently had used the seat belt extension, which is really the little demo seat belt. That's, right, they that just they, added on. Yeah, the flight attendants used to demonstrate to you how to, how to do a seat belt, <laughs> as if not, none of us who fly haven't, haven't done that like a thousand times in our lives already. But they got to show us how. There's always someone it's their first time. Yep. Okay. Getting to the show, we are speaking about changes in medicine. Uh, we are on both medicallyspeakingradio.com slash live, where people can call in with their questions by Skype. Uh, we're also on Periscope right now, where people can also put their medical questions uh, just by typing them in. Um, they can also give us hearts if they want. Thank you. Appreciate that. And you can read them off the screen and answer them. I can read your questions off the screen and answer them on the, on the, uh, the on Periscope. Periscope. Yeah. Of course. Uh, We'll try to get the questions as quickly as we can. You're looking up here to see if we have anybody calling through Skype. Yeah, I just want to see the, the right screen. We're there on, on a sound effect screen right now in our monitor. Oh, yeah. I just kind of, yeah, just, just in case, you know, the, the Skype, you know, the Skype, the Skype may fire up any second now. Okay. Especially with all these Periscope people watching. That's you know, true. They might just I, go, I need to hey, keep an eye on that just in yeah. case they call in with questions or write their questions. We had a good session yesterday uh, just on my own. I was, I just titled it Ask the Doctor. Yeah. Went on for 20 minutes with people asking questions through Periscope. It was yeah. fun. So also Skype, for those of you who are listening live at medicallyspeakingradio.com slash live, I encourage everybody to uh, get on our newsletter at medicallyspeakingradio.com. You can sign up on the right side of the screen for the newsletter, email newsletter, and you'll know when we're recording our shows. Usually it's 10 o'clock on Saturday, although this week, uh, May 23rd, it's not because we're recording at live and putting it out may 2016th uh, uh, and thank you for the hearts on periscope by the way and hello so should we jump into mm -hmm. changes in medicine changes in medicine I, oh here we go we got questions doctor from time to time i am losing energy and get sleepy mm. from time to time does that time involve smoking um certain substances <laughs> they, they may answer back on that because uh, this does uh, have a lot of follow-up answers yeah actually you can answer uh larry's question my question would be do you have changes in your sleep habits from time to time or dietary habits or 
keeping up with regular exercise. These are all things that are lifestyle contributors to having fatigue and low energy. And I'm going to suspect that the, the, the questioner is a younger person and, and oftentimes, uh, particularly college students, et cetera, are sleep deprived. Oftentimes, especially around times of exams. We see that a lot. The other things that can happen, you know, from time to time, that's the thing that throws me a little bit. There's a lot of problems with symptoms of fatigue that are occurring chronically, and we can do a number of tests to look into explanations for that. We look at thyroid uh, for men, especially as they get older. We look at testosterone. Uh, we look at vitamin B12. We look at blood counts to see if maybe there's um, an occult anemia we otherwise aren't aware of. But lifestyle reasons are, are, the, are the most prominent. Um, even screening for depression needs to be done with this sort of... Uh, I wonder if we could be simple. more civilized like our European counterparts and take a big old gonzo siesta right in the middle of the afternoon. Gonzo siesta. I like that idea. Hey, actually, we got a thank you. I believe that's from the person who was asking about they're tired from time to time. Um, I also, uh, don't say thank you too soon because I want to say that in addition to those things I mentioned, uh, you know, you heard me say before that this, uh, from time to time or intermittent nature of your fatigue is a little, uh, perplexing to me, actually specific, I would say, yeah. uh, there are things that are a little harder to pick up even, oh, here it says the time to time guy, LOL. Other things that can be going on is uh, what people say was the ancient origin of the stories of vampires. These were people who uh, had problems with being exposed to daylight or they were really pale. They had intermittent symptoms and they were having problems with having enough blood. Now, as far as actually drinking blood, I don't know about that, but... They, and I'll get to the essential oils question in a moment. They may have been accused of drinking blood. And this, what I'm talking about is a condition called porphyria, where you have these intermittent times of destruction of red blood cells, usually associated with abdominal pains when the episodes occur. And these are a little harder to track down. Uh, you start with a blood count and go from there. But these are things that your doctor would be tracking down and, and sequentially doing. You don't do all the tests at first. You kind of do them in order. The uh, question of the internal, and I'll get to the question of the increased immunity in a moment too. Question of essential oils e internally. I know of no reason to take essential oils internally. Not that you can't, and usually we discourage people from having a lot of oils that they take orally. Of course, we use them for cooking and, and for food and for your, your bread at the Italian restaurant, the, the oil and the vinegar. But the essential oils, uh, and the th products are put in them. I can't comment as to the safety of that. So I'm, I'm not encouraging doing that. Um, I, I'd have to actually look at the product you're talking about to go any further. But for now, I would, I would discourage it. The question of immunity, increasing your immunity. Oh, no, just to, to the problem is our listeners, Dr. Vaughn is reacting to uh, people typing in their questions Correct. via this, uh, via Periscope. So. Right. That's why I'm jumping from topic to topic and trying to keep up with the questions as they come in. Uh, because So the question is, how does one increase one's uh, immunity? I believe that's what the question okay. was. I, it, it didn't have a question mark at the end, and it said, want to increase immunity. So either they're trying to sell a product or they're <laughs> right. they want to increase their immunity. So my, my answer to that would be, just like I was saying before, I, I'm trying more and more to not be dependent on medicines 
and to talk about lifestyle changes that make you just plain healthier without being dependent on a pill, especially after our last show that talked about how much they cost. Yeah. Uh, lifestyle changes, getting regular rest, uh, getting regular exercise and eating nutrition nutritiously are the best things for increasing your immunity. Um, if there is a problem that needs to be worked up because you actually have some kind of immunodeficiency or problem with your immune system, your white blood cells, or the complement system, or antibodies being made by the B cells, that needs to be chased down by a probably a hematologist or a, a, a primary care physician who's really on top of it and doesn't mind spending some time reading on it. That's my thoughts on immunity. Okay, so we were talking about, or we started to talk about changes in medicine. Or you meant changes or developments Current, in medicine? Currently, what's between? changing? What's going on in medicine? Yeah, I, I had teased this a, a couple shows back with mentioning CCM or chronic care management. This is a new designation by Medicare, and we're going to see it on other insurances very shortly. Some of them we already do. So chronic care would be things like uh, caring for diabetes, hypertension, that S kind of stuff. Yeah, the thing that those problems have in common is they're not going away. Right. And they require stuff to be done, checking labs, um, regular visits to the doctor. Possibly medication. Possibly most management likely. medication. Mo most of the time, yes. So yes, diabetes, um, hypertension, hypothyroidism, any kind of cancer. These are all things that we have to stay on top of and, and monitor. And what's interesting is most patients who have Medicare and are coming in, they actually have a couple of these things going on. I say most who come in because the people who don't have a couple of those things aren't coming in as often. Well, and the people who are on Medicare likely are your older, older yes. folks, right? And, and so they've, they've accumulated problems over the years, just like your car accumulates problems over the years. The more miles, the more things have a chance to go wrong. So CCM is a change in how Medicare allows doctors to bill. Oh, I have a question here. I have a one-year-old that has hard stool. I have increased fluids and decreased milk products, question mark. Again, I'm going to throw out the disclaimer. I'm, I'm not this one-year-old's doctor, and I'm not going to uh, treat it. Uh, but we can talk about, in general, infants or toddlers with hard stools. Okay. How do you, how do you fix it? Uh, increased water intake is the very first thing I think of. Which what it sounds like this, this questioner has already... Is going toward they i'm sorry did, what I, I read it did you catch what they said about water intake yeah so they increase water and decrease they, oh they've already uh, done it lactose okay yeah um after that uh it's hard to say in a one-year-old if it's an older person we talk about constipation we talk about increasing physical activity in addition to drinking more water get that you know, baby to do more one-year-old that's not so yeah. much something you're going to be able to do uh i am not going to be able to make much progress on this one beyond that without being able to do an examination and know more about the, the health history, uh, we would probably be pretty quick to defer to uh, GI if this is not improving just with time. I, I will say that there is some blood work that could be done. Uh, the one thing that pops in my head is hypothyroidism where people will get constipated. Um, there may be a health issue going on that needs to be picked up. And again, over the radio, we're not able to get much further with that one. Okay, jumping back to CCM. CCM, in the past, Medicare would only pay a doctor for having a face-to-face -face visit in the office with a patient. So if we had stuff piling up here around the office, 
with, uh, they have a question about this, question about that. Their medications need to be adjusted. The pharmacy's calling because the other doctor changed their dose. And now we're trying to renew it at the dose it was before. And I didn't get the note from the, the uh, consultant or the consultant calls and says, hey, I did my workup for such and such. Ruled out the bad thing, but you know what? They really have this other thing and they need to go see another specialist. Well, all of this requires us to take this in, process it, and make a bunch of phone calls. Usually it's my nurse, Polly, who's, who's doing the bulk None of None of which involves thus far a face-to-face encounter with the patient and is therefore not being reimbursed. We're not being reimbursed for any of it. Right. And it takes time from when I'm supposed to be seeing patients in the room. And so the re- yes, and so the reimbursement is not taking into account the, uh, the, 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 the time, age in which we live. I mean, case in point, look at how we're doing now. We're interacting with people through various forms of media. Yeah. You know, and patients now contact their doctor by, by phone, by Skype, by email. Uh, email. Patient portal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so CCM is finally CCM. beginning to recognize. Yeah, the way it works is that if you can document 20 minutes of doing this with your office staff, and it has to be somebody who's uh, at a license level. Uh, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but the way we interpret the rules is that it's one of our nurses who is documenting time or myself. Mm-hmm. Or this can happen with the other doctor in the office and another nurse. But usually it's Polly and myself in our office. And every time we work on that patient's material, we're, we're tracking the time. If at the end of the month, we spent 20 minutes working on this, that's not a little thing. I've noticed that if I just renew a couple medicines and check and do a, a med check, we're just getting one minute of time for doing that. Right. So it's, it's taking some time if we're spending 20 minutes of the office staff time doing this. Then we bill Medicare. And the charge is a half to a third of what a regular office visit would be. Half of a quick, simple office visit, a third of a more prolonged, in-depth office visit for a couple of things that that uh, you have to take into account with each other, like diabetes and kidney disease or high blood pressure and diabetes. So then we go ahead and bill that charge to Medicare for that month. The next month, if we spend 19 minutes working on them, we don't, we don't, we can't bill it. And so what's happened is when we had a couple hundred patients signed up for it, we only had about 12 who we actually had enough time. Now we haven't started billing it in our office yet, but we will this month. This will be the first month we're actually going to bill it. Along with it come some other things. It's not just what I talked about. It's coming up with a comprehensive care plan and checking off the things that are going on. And this is happening all throughout the year. This is not just at a once a year visit where we're taking care of other things. This is making sure this whole long list of things that need to be taken care of outside of what we're doing at a regular office visit get taken care of because we can't get to everything in one visit or in two visits a year, depending on how many problems the patient may have. These are people that are more complicated and need more attention than just what happens face to face with the doctor. And I can vouch for yeah, it takes more than we have time to take care of what's going on. Uh, and some of these patients, we're just barely able to put out the fire for whatever they came in for that week without all the time to check and make sure these other things are being addressed. So we're going to have Polly going over these care plans, providing them to the patient. They also get after, after hours support. They can reach a member of the care team 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, thankfully... Our patients are very good about limiting that 
to things that actually need to be addressed after hours, and they're not calling about things that could wait until office time. The rare times that somebody actually does call through, I just let them know that that's something that could be addressed during office hours, call back Monday after eight. Yeah. So, so do you like this, uh, what is it, chronic care management process at all? Or is it, is I it do. a more efficient way to deal with things? I do, because here's what happens. When lab results or referrals come in, uh, when a patient's not in the office, I can't not look at them. What if it says, hey, this guy's got this problem and it needs to be addressed quickly? I, I can't leave that undone. Or if their labs come in and there's something that needs to be addressed, I can't wait until the office visit to look at it. Okay. So I'm squeezed here. I have to look at these things. I may not take action on them immediately, but I have to be looking at them. And so it's been killing us to have to be doing this, but not getting any reimbursement for it. So I jumped on this immediately when I saw what it was. It's not necessarily getting a lot more for the patients than they've had before. A little bit. It is enough that it's worth the patient doing it because they're getting it for a, a discount compared to what it would be if we called them in. Okay. And oftentimes we would do that in the past. We'd say, Hey, stuff came in. We need to talk about it. We won't take any more action because we're not getting paid for all the time it takes to address this. We haven't come in for a face-to-face -face visit. Now we just take care of it for a fraction of the price over the phone. So now you get, you can get paid for every accumulated 20 minutes per patient per month. Per month. So if you only, like, this is what you were saying, if you only did 19 minutes in January, you've, you've kind of lost that 19 minutes. The, the time, the, the timer resets itself. Yeah. 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 Well, Which, so that's fine. That's well, the, fine. We're it, okay with that. We're getting more than we were before. So right. Well, okay. So the whole point is that this incentivizes you to keep on top of this patient's problems. Yeah. You know, you're getting something out of it and the patient's obviously getting some care out of it. And things yeah, don't it, fall it, through the cracks. It's a win-win-win. Yeah, all right. It costs less for us, costs less for the patient, costs less for Medicare. Yeah. All right. So that's that's chronic care management. Uh, all of our Medicare patients should be asked to sign an agreement with their primary care doctor for this. Now, the rules say that only one doctor can bill for this charge for a patient. Fair enough. And so we, we sign an agreement, and they can change it anytime they want. It'll be effective at the end of that month. I'm trying to think if there's any other benefits besides just what I described. The care plan, uh, the availability after hours. Cost savings to the patient. Not having to come in for everything because some stuff they could get over the phone that before we'd say, oh, you have to come in for that. Yeah. Yes. Like, like, like adjusting medicines. You know, Say somebody's got an antidepressant and we're starting out the dose. We start out with a low dose. Uh, we'll generally follow up in three or four weeks to adjust the dose up because it's it's expected that it's going to be needed or that maybe they'll say, no, I'm okay with this dose. Well, we could just do that by phone now. Yeah. And or especially if they, the cost. yeah. And if they live far away, they don't have to take time out of their day to, you know, <laughs> commute all the way in. And, yeah. and then, yeah, get their yeah. vitals taken. And for us, it doesn't require using a room and all that face-to-face -face time with the doctor. It takes so much more time to do something in an, an exam room face-to-face -face with the doctor. Than it would if Polly takes a message. Well, yeah, and, and, and I just okay it over the phone. And coming from the patient side of things, I don't think we appreciate or see that. You know, we just see why well, I, I walked into the room and I spent maybe 10, 15 minutes with the doctor, and you know, gee, that was that was uh, uh, nothing at all. You know, these guys get paid a lot to do very little. Well, no, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes for that 15 minutes, both before and after the encounter. Oh yeah, we're we're doing paperwork all the time. 
Thank I'm you, government. Yeah. All day long, I'm doing paperwork between patients, yeah. trying to keep up with it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the patients don't see that part of it. The other things that are coming up, uh, there's something called meaningful use. And, and patients, of course, never hear this term because it doesn't fall into their realm at all. But this is very much what's going on and has been, uh, well, how many years now is it? Uh, about five, well, I think we're coming up on five years now, that something called meaningful use has been a magic buzzword in, in medicine. Meaningful use is referring to the use of electronic medical records. And it has that word meaningful in front of it because anybody can install a computer system in their office and say, I have electronic medical records. Okay. But early on when this happened, the integration, the actual use of it was not that meaningful. They would have the system and still have paper records. Or they would have the system, they'd still write uh, paper prescriptions, so they're not in the system. So now, uh, the current state of meaningful use that doctors have to attest to in order to get um, and avoid, well, at first it was a big bonus. Like they would get $19,000 for the first year that they attested to it and showed that they were getting meaningful use out of their electronic medical records. And the, that, that award or that meaningful use payment was to help compensate for the cost of the computer system because these systems are expensive. For example, currently we're spending $810 just for the electronic medical record, not counting the servers, um, the, the routers, the switches, and all the computers in our office for all the personnel. So you would, you would actually start to get some money to help offset that. And that's what the purpose was for Medicare is to help doctors be able to afford this move to the electronic medical record. The meaningful use now, what you have to be able to do is demonstrate that you can send patient demographics, uh, patient histories, yeah. the past medical history. Uh, actually, I don't know if past medical history was part of it. I think it was just a problem list, which is a form of medical history. It's showing what's currently going on. Medication list, allergies, and be able to share that from your electronic medical record to another one. To another doctor. To another doctor. Or, yeah. And so the way the test is done is an electronic medical record software company other than yours has to be able to confirm that they received it and it worked. And then the other things you have to do is make referrals electronically. Again, to specialists. Sending and that information kind of thing. in this kind of format where they can just have it enter digitally into their system instead of hand write and hand type and, and mess up the spelling of people's names or their birth dates or more critically the the uh, dosage of medications or the types yes. of medications yeah, and yeah we're trying to get it all digitally transmitted so that we don't get these transcription errors and it saves time too and it gives you a more full record and more standardized record than if it's just uh, patient remembering sometimes because not everybody remembers what medicines are on or doses we run into that daily here that we ask a patient okay here's your medication list is this what you're taking and they just kind of nod their head yeah sounds right they, yeah and then we find out after they leave the office the specialist calls and says this isn't right at all the patient didn't know and so oftentimes we'll ask them can you just bring in your bottles and so we can read them and actually see for ourselves and i feel bad doing that because that's 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 kind of saying to the patient, we don't trust you to know for yourself or to keep your own list. Well, if but, it happens to you enough times, you, you just kind of have yeah, to it adopt to that. Enough times, and you realize people's safety is dependent on us having accurate information. 
we, we need to do this. So we've been doing that quite a bit. Other things on meaningful use is to uh, have your patients actually in an electronic form and do your prescriptions electronically. And this is what doctors all over the country now are doing. Now, I talked about the financial incentive at first. Well, that disappears. In fact, it drops by more than half each, is more than half each year, about half, I think it is, each year until it's gone after, I think, just four or five years. And then, if you don't make the uh, meaningful use, you get penalized. Ah, it starts going the other way. Yes. You get 2% deducted from your payments for the whole next year if you don't make it. Well, it's just a good idea to begin with. Uh, I mean, the, the fact that they have to incentivize financially is, yeah, well, that, that, that's okay, but they really don't have to. It's just, a, it's, you know, it's for your own good. It's for everyone's good. You know, I had a, a question that uh, had emailed, uh, came in about nosebleeds. Oh, this is just, okay, part. this has nothing to you do with, that. you know, yeah, the, this, is, this is a patient question. Again, you know, one of these, uh, we can't, we can't diagnose the problem, but this person claims that they have, they've had a, at least a small, some small form of nosebleed, maybe nothing copious or whatever for the last year, virtually every day for a year. That gets my attention. That's something I'd want to have worked up. And so what, what would the workup be? Um, we'd certainly want to know historically, have they been having other bleeding from the gums, uh, rectal bleeding or, or blood on the toilet paper, um, lots of bruising on the skin perhaps. And then that takes us down one direction for working up for some kind of a bleeding problem that's going on. We want to check their blood pressure and maybe follow their blood pressure for a while, see if they have hypertension. And that that's why this is happening. And it can be just something completely benign like, they have a lot of growth of blood vessels very close to the surface of their nose and changes in temperature and humidity that contribute to them just having a lot of bleed or lots of trauma. Nose pickers have frequent nosebleeds too. Those are the main things we'd look at. Oh, actually, you'd want to physically examine the nose too to make sure there's not something wrong with it. Um, you'll see this in people who abuse drugs, people who snort cocaine. Uh, quite often, they'll actually have a hole right through the septum of their nose. I have several patients who have that, not from cocaine necessarily, but... Uh, from trauma or from having had something happen to the septum of the nose. Uh, you know, it's like they had a ring going through and the only way you'd know it is by looking. In fact, I've told patients that they had it. They had no idea that they had this hole right through their septum. And those often bleed because there's an interruption of the path of the blood vessels where the hole is. And they have no idea that they had it or how they got it. No, no. Um, and of course some of them do know because <laughs> now, Surprisingly, not in our practice, we don't have people, at least that admit, to that it was it was cocaine use that caused the the septal um, perforation. Mm -hmm. Well, so like many symptoms or problems, it could have a very benign uh, reasoning behind it, or it could be something serious. Yeah, but yeah, it could go either way. It could go either way, but maybe the weight falls toward the benign. Oh yeah, uh, vast. Um, Taking into account the vast number of people who have this problem, a huge majority of them are, are just a benign issue. And, and here's how you fix it. If it keeps consistently bleeding, you find where the vessel is. And this is a part of the body where there's a lot of blood flow. Oh, you're not going to say cauterize it. That's it. But when we cauterize, there's a couple different ways we do it. We can spray with a, a spray anesthetic called cetacaine, but it's really strong and, and it's kind of a chemically. Uh, or you can shove a curling iron up their nose. Never seen that done. Nah, it's probably not a good idea. Most curling irons are big. Yeah. Different well, different diameter. Well, 
but so so well cauterization really just involves application of heat to the bleeding Usually, area you, well or chemical oh uh, in our office we do it chemically with silver nitrate sticks they look like a long match stick and you do, just touch the head to it and it is a little burning sensation but i've had a lot of patients tell me that it uh they'd rather just go ahead and do that than have had any kind of annoying or strong chemical spray put on it uh, it's not that bad of a sensation. They don't jerk back and say, ouch. They just kind of say, yeah, I felt the burning. A slight tingle or whatever, and we're done. Yeah, it, it hurts, but it goes away, and that's fine. And what, what you're doing is damaging or killing off the top layer of the skin there and the nasal mucosa, and then when it heals, these blood vessels right up in the surface, now they're deeper most of the time. Okay. Of course, you have risk that you're going to make the problem worse because these blood vessels coming in could actually be close to the surface and bleed more but majority of times it's actually better so much so that for this guy or person uh, the condition you're describing i i would say just go ahead and do the cautery yeah now you were talking about uh, i don't want to want to get away without you telling me about your burning sensation oh the yeah I'll get t- uh, the other thing i was going to say is uh we we really do have to see where we're going with this we can just blanketly cauterize that whole area where these vessels are because we know it very well yeah but it's much more satisfying and, and i'm much more likely to go ahead and recommend it to a patient if i can see where the bleeding is so that means coming in yeah the same day the bleeding occurred this stuff heals so fast just like the lining of the mouth the lining of the nose heals very quickly and you can have a horrible bleed and the next day it leaves no trace as to where it was okay so you got to catch it while it's doing it yeah another piece of information that the doctor would want to know is is it always on the same side Oh, okay. Yeah. And now there's a couple different places where people get nosebleeds. There's the front of the nose, which is usually benign. And then there's the back of the nose. And these are the ones that bleed down the throat, uh-huh. even when you're not lying on your back. And so if we see that there's blood in the throat when we do an oral examination, because it's been dripping down, that's concerning. Uh, there's an artery back there that can bleed uh, way back in the middle of the head, in the back of the nasal passage in front of the throat. Uh, and those those are an emergency and you need to go to the emergency department for it because they're compromising the airway for the amount of blood that could come out of that artery and it needs to be fixed by ear, nose, and throat doctor. We can do temporary solutions in the emergency department by putting in tampon-like devices that Mm -hmm. will stop the bleeding. Some of them are actually balloons you fill up. They're all very uncomfortable. In the old days, we used to run something through, um, through the nose, down the throat, pull it out the mouth, tie on a a gauze uh um i'm not even sure what piece of batting it. or whatever yeah. right and then you would pull it and fish it back nose, up through the nose back up and tie it uh tie it uh, at the opening of the nostril so it hold pressure against this person's uh behind their nose and the nasopharynx to tamponade the bleeding or, or to block it from coming down the throat so it only come out the front and then you'd leave them that way until you follow up with the ent doctor the next day Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully this will not be necessary. Yeah. And yeah. now we do it with inflatable devices and such. So now you had your own uh, own burning sensation you were telling me about. Awful sensation. Yes. Um, and, and for anybody else who takes Claritin, um, this will be a warning to you so you can avoid having the same sensation. Claritin burns if you don't get it all the way down your throat. So you really need to drink it with water if you have any trouble swallowing pills at all. And it's a tiny little pill, so it's actually harder to know if you got it down. I took this Claritin at bedtime last night, thought I'd swallowed it down, didn't use any water, just tried to swallow it, and it got stuck in, in my throat, uh, actually in a crypt of my tonsil, and it burned 
burn, burn. It burns is. It, it, it burns is. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> How do your eyes get big when you do that? <laughs> oh my! So, yeah, so, so what'd you morning, make? Uh, drink water with your Claritin. So you couldn't make it go. You just had to write it out, huh? I, I took a couple ibuprofen and called myself in the morning. But <laughs> okay, very nice. Uh, actually, this actually brings us to the end of another show. Uh, talking about changes in medicine. I am sorry that we, uh, we didn't get to more callers, uh, but that's because they didn't call it. Well, that <laughs> helps, we did, yeah. We did get the Periscope. And thank you, Periscope people. And thank you for the hearts. We appreciate that. Um, we got to run. We're going to be back. Uh, well, it depends on when you're listening to us. If you're listening to us live, this show will be posted on the 23rd of May. And then we'll be back for the 30th of May with a show. I believe that one's going to be pre-recorded. Mm, okay. And I... I I forgot who our specialist guest is. We will have a guest uh, for the next show after this one. So until that time, this is myself, Dr. Mark. Oh, hey, people are telling us good show and thanks and giving us hearts on Periscope. Thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, this is Larry Finney and Dr. Mark Vaughn telling all of our listeners, stay in good health. Oh, wait, we never played the commercial. <laughs> Here's our commercial from Auburn Oaks. So let's go ahead and play that before we end. Auburn Oaks Skilled Nursing Center on Bell Road is a team of physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, and rehabilitation therapists who are there during an extraordinary time in your life. We provide the necessary essentials you need to weather through the storm. Call us. The first thing we'll do is listen. Then you'll get expert advice on what to expect. You'll know that Auburn Oaks is the best skilled nursing care center when you learn more about us. Make the decision and go to auburnoakscarecenter.com.